Hello and welcome to another episode of Jade Talks Travel. I'm your host, Jade, and I'm an ex-travel agent, teacher of travel and tourism, including IATA airfares and ticketing. I've worked on a cruise ship, taught English in Japan, and explored almost 60 countries. And I'm here to share my industry knowledge, stories from the road, and to inspire you to get out there and see the world. I also interview other travel experts, and today I have a special guest, Dan from The Road Chose Me, who has recently completed a three-year expedition driving around Africa. In that time, he got up close with lions, elephants and gorillas. He was often the first foreigner that many locals encountered, and he spent many nights camping under the stars completely alone in the wilderness. You can find his books, vehicle fit out and blog at theroadchoseme.com. He's currently got a special edition photography book on Kickstarter called The Road Chose Me, Volume 2. If you like what you hear, please tell your friends. And for more episodes of Jay Talks Travel, visit jjackson.com.au. Here's my chat with Dan from The Road Chose Me. This morning, I have a super special guest, Dan, who's just completed driving around Africa. Welcome, Dan. Thanks very much, Jade. It's nice to be here. Thanks for coming on to Jade Talks Travel. I'm looking forward to it. I think we're going to cover some interesting stuff. Yeah, so I have a ton of questions. (laughs) Uh, Having never been to Africa, uh, I thought this would be an awesome opportunity to get a good expert on the show. I guess, first of all, what inspired you to hit the road? Well, actually, Jade, back in the day, I was an engineer and uh, I did that for a few years, you know, sitting at a desk. But I realized I was sitting inside at a desk all day and all the beautiful stuff was outside. And, you know, it just wasn't making me happy to sit at a desk so much. So uh, I quit my job. I sold all my stuff. And my first big trip, I drove to the very top of Alaska. And then I turned around and drove all the way through Central and South America to the bottom of Argentina. Uh, That trip took two years, actually. And, you know, it just became something that I really enjoy doing and something I want to do for the rest of my life is explore the planet with my own vehicle. And uh, on that trip, the parts that I loved the most were the most wild, you know, the furthest away from civilization. And then so the more I researched and the more I looked into it, I started to set my sights on Africa. And that's how this whole idea of why don't I build a vehicle and, and drive around Africa came to light. What a great story. I guess you had some experience having driven the length of North and South America. What was involved in the planning stage for Africa and how far in advance did you prep and what was the hardest part of the preparation? Yeah, there was was quite a lot more planning for Africa than there was for the Americas. Um, You know, it's a lot more remote. There's more safety considerations. Um, So, you know, preparing the vehicle for the kind of conditions in West Africa yeah. Um, so I spent, I spent probably like three years, like seriously planning and preparing, but realistically, I mean, it took so long because I was saving money the whole time. Yeah. Um, so I guess, you know, the planning and preparation, maybe you could get it all done in six months if you needed to. Yeah. Um, and I'd say probably the hardest part was the visas for West Africa. Yeah. A lot of the countries there, they don't really have tourism, you know, like Nigeria and the Congo, you know, it's it's not a kind of place that tourists just show up and say, hey, I just want to look around your country. And so the governments, they're really not kind of open or, or ready for this idea where tourists are going to come. Yeah. Uh, 
Mm. And so it was, it was very difficult to get all of the visas that I needed and I had to get them on the road. I couldn't just, you know, go to a capital city somewhere in Europe or America or whatever because they don't last long enough. So I, so, I had to do it as I was moving, which was challenging. So I guess there was this constant uh, concern that, hang on, is this trip going to end because I can't get a visa? And not only, Jade, that, that's right, but not only is it going to end, but am I going to get stuck? It's really bizarre, but what can happen is as you're moving through all the countries, you'll get somewhere and they won't give you a visa for the next country. So then you're kind of stuck, but then they also won't give you a visa for the country you've just come from either. So I met people who legitimately w were stuck. And then normally, you know, as a traveler, you could just get on a plane and figure something out. But because we have our vehicles with us, that makes it a lot more challenging. Were there issues taking vehicles across the border, like for quarantine and customs and all that kind of stuff? Not really, Jade. No, it's actually a lot easier than you would think to drive a foreign plated vehicle to basically any country in the world. Um, so countries have this agreement, they all signed it back in the sixties or something yeah. where you can bring in as a tourist, you can bring in a vehicle, they call it a temporary import permit. So basically you just go to customs and fill out a form with all the details. They give it a rubber stamp and a signature and they say, you're good to go for a month. See you later, have fun. And so like no crash safety, no emissions, you know, it doesn't matter which side the steering wheels on all of that kind of stuff doesn't matter because you're only in the country temporarily and you don't pay import taxes. And so you can actually do that in almost every country in the world. Um, and once you sort of realize that and you get the hang of it, crossing the borders actually isn't difficult at all. Um, and they're yeah, quarantine. They don't seem to care at all. Sometimes they had a quick little search inside. They're kind of, you know, do you have any drugs? Do you have any guns? Yeah. And I just open up a few cabinets and they'd be like, oh, okay, cool. No problem. See ya. So, yeah, the borders actually turned out to be really easy once I had the visa already in my passport. Wow. I wasn't aware of that. Yeah, yeah. It, it's it's this – I didn't know it either until I sort of researched driving through Central America and then kind of, you know, my mind really expanded of like I can drive anywhere I want like on the whole <laughs> planet. And, and I've met people who literally have driven to like 100-plus countries – you know, all over the world, and it works the same way no matter where you go. Interesting. Yeah. What vehicle did you choose for your Africa trip? I'm um, based in Canada, Jade, and so over here the Jeep Wrangler is really popular. Yeah. There's, you know, a lot of aftermarket support, and actually they're pretty inexpensive to buy. And so I bought one here, a four-door and I put a pop-up roof on it and then kind of all of the accessories I wanted. So there's a fridge, there's solar panels, there's a whole drinking water setup, and then kind of a bunch of four-wheel drive stuff as well, you know, like bigger tires and suspension and all of that. Yeah. Um, and it's it's an uncommon choice to drive around the world because Jeep doesn't have the, the support around the globe, but it worked really, really well for what I was doing. And it was probably half price of what I would have spent, you know, on a comparable Toyota Land Cruiser or something yeah. like that. That would have been... I mean, I know I've seen lots of documentaries of people doing uh, long road trips with Land Cruisers and what have not. But, um, yeah, you don't commonly see Jeeps. That's right, yeah. And, and it turned a few heads, actually, when I got to South Africa. People were like, but why would you drive a Jeep? <laughs> so it was, it was pretty funny. Did you have any issues with getting spare parts along the road? Well, uh, interestingly enough, I didn't really need any spare parts. Um, it never broke Jeep. down once. Yeah, I know. It did really well. Um, 
you know, a couple of little things here and there. And there's companies now that will ship all over the world. And yeah. so it was never a problem to get the little bits and pieces that I needed. Um, but it would have been an issue, you know, if, if I did need a major engine rebuild or something, yeah. it definitely would have been, I would have been ordering them from America and then waiting, you know, there'd, there'd be no local parts support in many yeah. of the countries. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. I know this is a tough question. Was there a single moment from your trip that was incredibly beautiful that there's no comparison to anywhere else you've ever been? <laughs> oh, it's really hard to try and pick one. Um, okay, top three. Yeah, top top a couple. I'd say the animal experiences that you can have in Africa, and it, it. I mean, it blows your mind at first. You kind of you're sitting in your vehicle or you're on safari, and and you're only you like fifty meters away from elephants, and then giraffes, and then lions, and then you get closer and closer, and at times you could almost reach out and touch them. It's it's mind blowing. And, and all of that is like 10 out of 10. But then there was a couple of really special experiences. Uh, when I was in Cameroon, I got to carry and interact with chimpanzees for an afternoon. Oh, wow. And so, you know, it's one thing to sort of look at them from five meters away. It's a whole other thing to have them like run over and climb on your shoulders and like groom your beard and play with your hair. <laughs> so that was, I mean, I'll never forget that as long as I live. Um, yeah. and, then, and then same goes seeing the gorillas in Uganda. Um, you go for a, like a 45 minute, um, kind of viewing to see these wild gorillas that have been a little bit habituated and the silverback gorilla is just so enormous and he's less than three meters away from you. And it's your brain absolutely can't comprehend what's happening. It's, it's like you're watching a CGI movie and the whole time I was elbowing the guy next to me saying like, I don't even believe this is real, but like, there can't possibly be a real life animal because it's, it's enormous. Its head is like three times bigger than mine. You know, and its shoulders and its arms and everything is like double me. So it's like it's, a, yeah, and like a giant. Absolutely like a giant, yep. And he's so close to you and like so powerful. And and again, like the facial expressions and the, the personalities that come out and, you know, like the little babies are bouncing up and down on him using him like a trampoline and he just looks bored just like a, like a human dad <laughs> would. Yeah, yeah. So, so the animal experiences in Africa are, are something that uh, I knew they would be really good, you know, seeing elephants and stuff is spine tingling. But then there's a couple of times where you just you can't even believe that it's real. It's it's amazing. Awesome. And how many countries did you travel through? Uh, I went to 35 countries in Africa. Holy dooly. Yeah, it was it was a lot. Basically, the entire coastline all the way around the outside. And was that based on I'm going to drive around the edge, or was it based on I want to visit these countries? It was a little bit of both and it was also a little bit of safety. Uh, a couple of the countries in the middle like Central African Republic um, yeah. are not, you know, Chad. They're, they're really off limits right now. Um, and so I, I sort of – and I did modify my route a little bit as I went to, to subtract countries I didn't feel were safe enough or, or add countries that I heard about. Yeah. Um, so it's – yeah, when you travel in Africa, you have to remain a bit flexible. I don't think you can really go and, – unless you go maybe to southern Africa, Botswana, Namibia – you know, they're beautiful and safe and friendly. But I think if you try to get a bit adventurous on the West Coast, you're going to have to be flexible and say like, oh, you know, I thought we could get to the north of Cameroon to what is supposedly one of the best national parks, but it was really off limits at the time. There was a lot of terrorists. So, you know, just couldn't go there at all. Yeah. I know after such a long trip and so many countries, a lot of it will be kind of a blur, will blur together. But what were the top three country highlights or destinations that really stood out? 
Yeah, again, again, it's hard to, to pin it down, but <laughs> definitely I think about this a lot and I do list Gabon as my favourite country. Okay. So What's special it's, about Gabon? It's on the west coast and it's right on the equator, so it's it's got a lot of jungles. Um, it's really wild and remote, so there's tons of land that just has never been, you know, developed or, or sort of improved in any way. Yeah. Um, but it, it also has massive national parks. The president has done a really good job of setting them aside as protected. And so they have forest elephants and gorillas and hippos and all kinds of cool animals. And when you go to these national parks, they're, they're quite accessible. There's actually a train you can catch from the capital city out to one of the famous national parks. And they're really well organized. You know, they have sort of safaris and you'll get close to all the big animals but because you're in West Africa, it's such a different vibe than when you go do it down in Southern Africa. Yeah. So it's it's not the safari you think of in your mind, you know, out in the open grasslands of Kenya or something. It's it's a totally different feeling and it's French speaking. People are super duper friendly. Um, so Gabon to me, I, I can't wait to go back. I list it as my number one that I want to go back to. Yeah. Um, and then surprisingly, I'd say Sudan is right up there as one of my favorites. Really? Yeah. The the people are unbelievably kind, like kinder and friendlier than anywhere else I've been on earth. And the landscape, it, it defies belief that the size of the desert and kind of the endless sand dunes. And you, you're out in these sand dunes for days and days. And then you come across a temple that's a big pyramid type temple thing that's older than anything Egypt has. It, it, it all predates Egypt. And there is not a single tourist. And there is no entry fee. There are no people you just get to wander around these ancient ruins all by yourself. It's like just you in the sand out in the desert. And it's it's really, really beautiful and kind of hard to believe you can you can see that kind of thing with no tourists around. That sounds incredible. Yeah, yeah. So it's I feel like Africa right now, a lot of it is really undiscovered, kind of beautiful paradise with friendly people who are just getting ready to accept tourists. And, you know, if you go there, it's pretty easy. You can go to places where they've never even seen white people before. Yeah. It still exists. Yeah. It's nice to know that there are places in the world that are still like that. Yeah, it was. I was so, like, stoked when I found out because I didn't really even know before I went. I kind of thought it had all been done and it would all sort of be more like South America, like yeah. pretty well roosted but not at all West Africa and then some of the countries in East Africa that, that aren't visited very often, they're still, you know, people just come up to you in the street to shake your hands because they say, I, I've never met someone from another country before. Like, can I buy you dinner or come to my house? I, I just want to talk to you. So it's, wow. it's really amazing. Yeah, yeah, it's really special. And you took them up on that offer? Oh, always, yeah. And, and you know, it was, it was a fantastic way to get to know locals or, you know, you sit down for street food and people just, just endlessly want to chat and ask questions. And so I realized I'm not only visiting their culture, but my by me being there, they get to experience a bit of our culture as well. And so I was kind of like an ambassador, I guess. Fascinating. What did mm. you learn about local life that you had no idea about before you went? Oh, I learned so much. Um I'd say number one, and this is this is something that I'm still writing about and still trying to wrap my head around, is that you know there's there's a 1.3 billion people in Africa. I would estimate that a billion of them lead extremely happy, friendly, joyous lives. They celebrate. They have plenty to eat. They have really nice houses that they've built for themselves. They kind of live a subsistence life. You know, they have yeah. a few chickens. They have a vegetable garden. 
their whole family and all of their friends live within walking distance and they are very, very happy people. Um, and I think, you know, the media has always shown us the bad stuff, the famine, the wars, the disease, yeah. but that, that only applies to such a tiny percentage of the people and the countries. There are other countries where people are just bursting with joy. They just sing for fun. They grown men just dance in the streets during the day just because they're happy. <laughs> that sounds yeah. amazing. It really is. It really is. And it's, you know, it's so different than kind of what the media shows us goes on in Africa. I have to say, after watching uh, The Long Way Down with Ewan McGregor, that really opened my eyes to how different each and every country was. And, you know, especially when they were crossing borders, you know, from one country that's green and lush, you cross the border and it's desert. Like, it's insane. Absolutely. Yeah. When, when I came down the West coast from Mauritania, which is in the Sahara desert, it's less than five kilometers. Once you cross into Senegal, suddenly there's like ladies wearing colorful clothes. There's huge baobab trees, there's fields of rice. And suddenly it's like green and lush five kilometers ago was sand dunes in the Sahara desert. It's crazy. That's insane. Yeah. How many times did you nearly die? (laughs) <laughs> I never even got close to dying, Jade. Really? Um, I never had a gun put in my face. I never heard a gunshot in three years. I never had a knife pulled on me. No one was ever violent or mean to me. So, you know, in that regard, it was. I felt really, really safe. Um, probably the worst thing that happened was I got malaria twice. Okay. Um, the first time was pretty bad. It was like a really bad flu, I guess. But then the second time was horrible. Um, I didn't think I was going to die, but for about five days, I didn't eat, sleep, drink, walk, or talk. So I yeah. was I was in a I was in a bad way for sure. And any encounters with animals that were potentially unsafe? Um, the animal encounters are a really strange one, Jade. Like at first, it, it feels unsafe, and you kind of you know your terror instinct comes to the surface. Yeah. And so I remember sitting around a campfire one night, and I heard a lion roar. And and when you hear a lion roar, it's like something deep inside you knows. And I was like just scrambled into the jeep <laughs> as for like one second. I was inside the jeep with the doors closed. Um, but then a few months later, I was sitting around a campfire with some South Africans and we heard a lion roaring, like not far away. And they were like, no, nah, man, don't worry about it. It's totally fine. Lions never attack groups of people. You like, and then, so as, as the months turned into years, you know, there were days I'm sitting in camp and an elephant wanders by and he was only maybe 30 meters away from me. And I just sat in my camp chair and watched, um, you know, and, and definitely elephants can kill people. They're dangerous. Yeah. But it just, I guess you just get better at kind of reading the situation and the feel and like he didn't seem angry. He wasn't flapping his ears. And you, you sort of just come to accept that, you know, there are big animals around, but I don't think they necessarily have to be dangerous like that. It's, um, yeah, and a lot of it is how you react to them as well. I think so, yeah. And um just getting used to what it actually sort of feels like. And, and definitely there were days though, like I was close enough to lions that I was too scared to put the window down. They were, they were maybe three meters away. I had to actually drive off the sandy track because they were just lying in the middle of the track. <laughs> um, so, and then, you know, those kind of days were in, and you're a hundred kilometers from the nearest person. It's like you and the lions, <laughs> there's yeah. no one else around. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, I guess I've dived a lot around the world and with multiple 
types of sharks and at no time was I ever fearful that, you know, this shark wants to eat me. It was just kind of like they were like, yeah, whatever. And most of the time, if I got too close, they'd be like, oh, leave me alone. Like I'm just trying to chill out. Right. It's amazing, isn't it? These big animals that have been really portrayed as like, you know, violent killers or something. Yeah. 99% of the time, they just like, just give me some space and yeah. like I'll hang out over here and you hang out over there. We don't we don't have to cross paths. Yeah. Mm. I know there's going to be a huge amount of meals that are vastly different, but what were some of the top meals you had? Yeah, and I'm glad you asked this question, Jade, because I, when I travel, one of my goals is to eat street food in every country. Yeah. Um, you know, partly because it's cheap, partly because I'm too lazy to cook lunch, and partly because it's just such a great way to meet locals and, and practice the language and, you know, smile and kind of get, get a feel for the country. Um, and so I always perpetually stop at just like a tiny little shack or, you know, someone with a little temporary whatever on the side of the road. Um, and, and so in, so, I was going to say, and some of the best meals I've had have been street food. Oh, absolutely. I recommend it so heavily. It's always delicious. And, and the people who make it, I think they always have real pride in what they're doing. Yeah. And they really, they really enjoy watching my reaction when I eat it, you know, to see if I enjoyed it. Yeah. Um, and so in Nigeria, they have this thing called jollof rice. I think it's kind of their most famous dish. Yeah. And it's it's kind of like fried rice as we know it, but it has way more spices in it and way more flavor. Um, so that's absolutely delicious. I had that, I think, every meal in Nigeria. Uh, nice. In Morocco, they have these – it's kind of like cooked in a clay pot. It's called a tangine. Yeah. And it's usually it's chicken or beef or goat kind of cooked really slowly in, again, a whole bunch of different spices – so I guess kind of like a stew, but like with the most flavored stew I've ever had in my whole life. Yeah. Um, so I loved that. Down in South Africa, they have the best meat on the planet. Really? So if you like if you like eating steak, South Africa is absolute paradise. Really? They get up at like 10 o'clock in the morning and start their cooking fire so that it will be perfect for dinner time. Oh, so my God. Like, it's like, yeah, oh yeah, it's like a six-hour operation to cook the meat for dinner because it, it's that's how important it is that it's perfect. And any countries that were predominantly vegan or vegetarian? Um, I think in a lot of countries they, they don't eat, you know, a ton of meat sort of because it's a luxury. Yeah. But I, but I felt like it was always there. There was always fish. There was always chicken, goat. So I feel like it's – you know, maybe they only eat at one meal a day or maybe yeah. even you know, just a couple of times a week. Yeah. But but I think I think most people ate meat. I don't remember ever meeting anyone that was a vegetarian. That's interesting. When I lived in Japan, the whole time I was there, I didn't meet anyone or know anyone that was a vegetarian And when because I, I was vegetarian at the time. And they were always fascinated by it. They were like, what do you mean you don't eat meat? Like it was just completely a bizarre concept. Right. Yeah. I think it's maybe it's our response to our kind of like really low quality, like factory farmed meat, yeah. you know, and, and, and we just sort of eat so much of it that we've become overwhelmed. And so lots of people are pushing back and saying, I don't want to do that. Yeah. Yeah. But I think if you go to like a more genuine country, they're just eating really high quality stuff, but maybe only, you know, not, not every single meal, maybe yeah. only once a day or once every couple of days. And what was the strangest meal you ate? <laughs> that's actually an easy one to answer because there's one that was a thousand times worse than everything else put together. 
<laughs> in the Congo, um, I ordered what turned out to be kind of like a bush rat. Okay. Um, and it, and I was doing it all in French and my French is pretty terrible. So, you know, everyone was encouraging me and okay, yeah, I'll get that. And when it came, it was, it was on a plate and it was cooked and it was completely whole sitting in front of me. So it still had teeth. It still had a little bit of burnt fur. It still had a tail and feet. Oh, um, and, oh yeah. And I just had to kind of like cut into it with a knife and like eat the meat. And, uh, it tasted like dirt kind of. And the most gamey meat I've ever eaten in my whole life. And it was it was actually disgusting. I really did not want to eat it. But I was trying as hard as I could to be polite. Um, and so I did eat most of it. But I, I did not want to eat it. It was That was easily the worst thing I've ever eaten in my life. That is honestly my greatest fear right there. Yeah. <laughs> when you're in the Congo, don't order bush rat. Don't, don't feel like... <laughs> Being adventurous with food is a good idea because it definitely was not a good idea. What's the what's it called uh, in French? You know, I I struggled to get the precise answer for that. Sometimes they call it a capybara, yeah, and then sort of I think they were calling it words in their local language. So I don't even know if they were really using a French word. Um, and then yeah, so I struggled I struggled you know to know what it was or to explain it to anyone else. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Obviously, photos are a big part of travel, and I understand you've got a book coming out with a whole bunch of photos. Is there a story about a particular photo you'd like to share? Um, that's a really good question. Yeah, I do have um, – right towards the end of the trip, I was in Djibouti, which is way over on the coast and the east coast, right next to Somalia, actually. Um, and it's it's a country that not many people go to, and I didn't really know much about it. And uh, you drive out and they have this like Martian landscape, so ridiculously barren and dry and dusty. And it was winter, their winter, and it was 40 degrees every single day. They were saying in summer it'll be 55 every day. Um, so, you know, unbelievably hot and harsh and dry. And, and then you, you get out to this like volcanic region where there's all these crazy rock formations and there's like – water bubbling out of the ground and steam and you literally feel like you're on Mars. You just, you can't understand what's happening. And so I'm out there and I'm looking around and right at sunset, these two young women walk towards me and they're like herding their goats. And both of them are wearing really, really colorful clothing out here in this desert with, I don't know what for drinking water. I don't know what the sheep are eating or the goats I just can't imagine how they're surviving out here. And uh, we didn't share a language, but, you know, we kind of chatted and smiled and and I asked the girl if I could take a photo of her and she was really shy, but she said yes and she sort of uncovered part of her face from her face veil. Oh, and so wow. I, took a, I took a photo of her at sunset and to this day I still think it's the best photo I've ever taken in my whole life. And And you can see in the background this like barren landscape and the goats and – I think it just captures this like I, I don't even understand what planet I'm on anymore. This this doesn't look like anything I've ever seen anywhere. Yeah. Um, yeah, and so I, I always try really hard to sort of capture so much of what's happening because there's always so much in Africa. There, there are so many colors and there's so many vibrant faces and things going on. You know, you, you'd be looking, eating your street meal and right across the road, someone's like welding a steel gate just out in the open with no welding mask. Yeah. And, and you know, a scooter goes by that's got literally a thousand chickens on it. And yeah. then, so you, you kind of, it's hard to like focus in on, on what am I supposed to be concentrating on? Yeah, that sounds amazing. 
Yeah, it's, so many, so many memories that it, even when I look at my own photos, you know, it, it all comes flooding back, and I remember yeah. exactly what I was doing that day. But it, it still seems hard to believe. It's, it's almost like looking at someone else's photo album. Awesome. It's um, it's a side of photography that often doesn't get told as well. Is the story behind it? And often a very simple photograph that you might go, oh, yeah, you know, that's all right, has the most incredible story behind it of, you know, how, you know, you were hanging out a window or what you had to do to get that or what happened in the lead up to that photo. And, and yeah, for me as a photographer, I find uh, often it's the story that really enhances the photo as well. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And, and I'm always fascinated when people flip through my photos, which ones they get drawn into and, and which ones they ask questions about instead of just sort of which ones that they flip past. Yeah. And it's not always what you think is the visual aspect. Often oh, it's... no. It, it's been quite surprising for me. People get drawn into the photos that I personally don't even think are very good photos. Uh, so, that yeah, that's always been really surprising for me. What was one of the photos that uh, someone was drawn into that surprised you? Yeah, there's one particular that comes to mind. Um, when you go to see the gorillas in Rwanda, it's it's really big business and they're making a lot of money. And so there's a lot of really high-end resorts in the area. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I camped on the side of the road, but then I was wandering around this whole place near a national park and they've built a, a gorilla out of bamboo that must be about as tall as a three-story building. Um, and then next to it is like an elephant out of bamboo. And I think there's a baby gorilla. And so I took a photo of it and in the background is a volcano kind of with mist covering the top of it. And so it, it sort of looks like something modern, like it could be in, you know, the New York museum of art, this huge gorilla, but at the same time, because of the setting, it looks like it's from Indiana Jones or something. Um, and I, I don't think it's, it's you know, it's kind of center frame, just taken at eye level. It's just yeah. like a two snap. You know, you could have taken it on an iPhone, but everyone gets sucked into it because it is like such an odd sight. Interesting. Mm. On the practical side, how much money did you have saved before you left and were you earning whilst you were traveling? Yeah, this is the perpetual question, isn't it, that all yeah. of us travelers <laughs> mull over. Yeah, and... Traveling How much would it cost vehicle? me to do the same thing? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, and traveling with a vehicle is a bit different because on yeah. one hand, you can save a lot of money on accommodation and food, you know, because you can camp for free yeah. a lot of the time and make all your own food, but then you spend more money because of gas, yeah, uh, petrol. Um, and so uh, what I like to do, and, and I've asked a ton of other people traveling in vehicles, and kind of the standard answer is that basically everyone on the road like this driving all over the world they spend between about $2,000 and about $3,000 a month for absolutely everything. Okay. That's, you know, yeah, all expenses covered. And, you know, if you want to cook all of your own food and sleep in your car and all of that, you could be at the $2,000 end or maybe even a bit lower. Yeah. But on the other hand, if you want to eat at restaurants and drink a bottle of wine, you know, every night and kind of do the really expensive activities, you're going to be at $3,000 a month or maybe even more than that. Yeah. Um, so it, it kind of comes down to you based on of what course. kind of trip you want to have. And then in a funny sense, when you travel with a vehicle, the faster you travel, you, the more you spend per month because you're driving more and petrol is the biggest expense. What was so, petrol cost over in, I know it's going to vary obviously, but mm, average petrol cost? Yeah, like uh, Australian dollars a litre. Uh, yeah. 
yeah, probably um, somewhere between a dollar and like a dollar fifty a liter. Okay. Um, and then there was, yeah, there was a couple of countries that were insanely cheap. Like in Sudan, it's I think four cents a liter. Holy dooly. Yeah, Nigeria was I think twenty cents a liter. So yeah, sometimes it was really great and it was really cheap. Uh, but yeah, a lot of countries I'd say were around a dollar, dollar and a bit. Yeah. Yeah. And were you earning whilst you were traveling? I was actually, yeah. Um, after my first trip, I, I kind of just spent my life savings and, and actually wound up with a bunch on my credit card. Yeah. And so I really, this time I really had to do it differently. Um, and it became a goal of mine to write for magazines. And okay. so, yeah, I write for a bunch of different travel magazines and, and sort of four-wheel drive and Jeep magazines. Um, and I've published a couple of books now as well that bring in a little bit of money too. Oh, fantastic. Mm. What magazines do you write for? Uh, the one you could get in Australia is called Jeep Action Magazine. So yeah. it's obviously about Jeeps and, you know, the places people go in them. Um, and then I write for a few out of the US. There's there's one called Tread Magazine, which is all about the outdoors. There's Overland Journal, which is, you know, documenting people who drive all the way around the world. Yeah. Um, yeah, magazines like that. They're very much focused on sort of vehicle-based travel. Yeah. Uh, and, and right now I'm trying to branch out into more sort of like hiking, camping, fishing, sort of almost more generic outdoor activities. Yeah. Mm. Interesting. Uh, one thing I haven't asked yet is about accommodation. So you mentioned mm. you camped most of the way? I did, yeah. Nearly – my Jeep is very well built out, you know, with a pop-up roof and a fridge and a kitchen and drinking water. So it's it's quite comfortable to camp in. It, it doesn't feel like a chore. Um, so that meant that I was able to camp a lot. Um, and in some countries that meant paying for a campsite if, if they have camping – Sometimes it meant going to a hotel and trying to negotiate to camp in their parking lot because okay. then it was safe and then you get access to the bathroom or whatever. Yeah. Um, but then in a lot of countries, I just camped out in the wilderness. So I would just kind of like drive away from a village, drive down a dirt road, turn off onto a tiny dirt track and just pull off to the side and camp right there. Um, I did that many hundreds of nights during the trip. Were you ever questioned by anyone doing that or did you face any difficulty or troubles? I never did, no. Um, often people would sort of come wandering by because I guess in Africa, whenever there's a little gravel road, probably someone lives nearby. Yeah. Um, but no, people were always really friendly. Sometimes they just wanted to know what was going on and if I just asked for permission, they were really happy and they'd smile and shake hands. Some people were just kind of a little bit curious. Um, the military in Cameroon, I remember, were a little bit suspect because – there was kind of some troubles at the time and they didn't really know who I was or if, if I should be doing that. But every time it ended up fine and they'd say, oh, okay, do whatever you want and then they'd leave again. <laughs> um, yeah, so it, no, it was never – and I never felt scared or worried. It's, you know, again, it's not like the media tells us where there's like all these yeah. people roaming around who are trying to get us. Like it just – that's just not the case. And I found that in so many places as well uh, where you expect to – you know, face troubles or expect to have a gun held at you. And it's just, that's not how it is. It's just locals going about their daily business. That's right. Yeah. And, and I really learned too, like if you treat people kindly and with respect, they'll do the same thing back to you, you know, start every interaction with a big smile and a handshake. And that, that really sets the tone and, and they'll do exactly the same thing. Awesome. What would you do differently if you did the same trip again? Um, that's a tough question. Again, you're good with tough questions, Jade. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's hard, it's hard to really say because 
at the time, I mean, I, I worked so hard to build the vehicle and save the money and, and I planned as much as I could, you know, as much as I could handle. So I feel like I, I you know, I gave 110% effort um, and I'm really happy with the way it turned out. You know, if, if time traveling me jumped out of a, you know, car back in 2014 and said, this is what it's going to be like, I would say, yeah, sign me up. That, like, that's yeah. exactly what I want. So kind of on the whole, I, I would say, like, I would do it all again, exactly the same. It, it all, you know, there were some mishaps. I, you know, I rolled the Jeep, I got malaria, like it didn't all go to plan, but I think on an adventure of that scale, you have to sort of expect a few things not to go to plan. Exactly. And, and that's sort of part of the reason that I left home in the first place, because I wanted a more kind of, um, unknown life, you know, with unexpected turns to keep me interested. And sorry, I haven't clarified, were you traveling solo or with a team or with friends or... I was by myself most of the time. Um, I've never found anyone crazy enough to come with me. Yeah. <laughs> uh, every now and again, I convoyed with others. Is that an advertisement? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, every now and again, I did convoy with other vehicles, yeah. like other travelers, just for added safety and added enjoyment. Uh, my girlfriend at the time came with me for a little while. Um, and I did pick up the odd backpacker here and there, like for a week at a time, you know, if they were headed in the same direction as me. Yeah. Um, so I wasn't always alone, but probably... 70 or 80 percent of the time I was alone yeah it's when I mean I travel solo a lot as well in fact pretty much always <laughs> and uh, people always ask oh don't you get lonely it's like no because when you travel alone then you meet people that's right yeah I think I think there's something special when you're alone people kind of look at you and think like oh maybe he needs something like we'll go and offer or ask yeah whereas I think as soon as you're a couple or, or more than two people other people look at that, oh, they've, they're fine. They can, you know, look after each other. They've got everything they need. Yeah. And so, yeah, you know, even just if you go to a local bar, if you're with someone else, you just wind up talking to them for the whole night. Yeah. But if you buy, if you buy yourself, inevitably you're going to talk to someone you've never met before. Exactly. Yeah. And what would be your top tip for anyone wanting to do the same kind of trip? Um, I would say if you're going to try and travel with a vehicle, I would say don't start off in Africa because it's kind of like <laughs> 10 out of 10 on the scale of like difficulty and logistics and stuff. Yeah. You know, um, I'd say start off in your own backyard and then go a little bit further afield and kind of get practice and, and, you know, learn how everything works. Um, but on that actually an even better tip, if you really want to see Africa, but you're more adventurous than just sort of, you know, go on a tour with a bunch of people that have white hair, fly into South Africa, rent a four-wheel drive. There are a ton of companies that rent them and they do a really good job. And you can self-drive all of the big national parks in South Africa, Namibia, Botswana, and yeah. you will see more wildlife and more beautiful things in, you know, if you do that for a month, it, it'll blow your mind the places you can get to. And, and it's up to you. You could go really remote and wild or you could even stick to paved roads, but you're still going to see thousands of elephants and you'll see lions and giraffes and hippos and you'll have an amazing time and it'll it'll give you a really good feel for Africa and kind of this idea of having a vehicle and like going wherever you want. Yeah. Awesome. And last up, where's next for you? Jade, I'm based in Canada and so this summer I'm going to be touring all the way across Canada. I'm doing a speaking tour and I'm promoting my new book um, and then I'm working on new adventures for next year, the start of next year, but I haven't locked anything down yet and so I'm not quite talking about it openly. I'm uh, still, I'm narrow. I mean, there's two or three options and I, I want to be certain before I sort of commit to doing anything. Yeah. Watch this space. That's right. Exactly. Yeah. But when I look at the world map, I mean, 
London to Southeast Asia would be my next dream ultimate trip. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of Australia I've never seen. I've never been to New Zealand. Um, Iceland really appeals to me. So, I mean, you know, somewhere in there I'll, I'll find something, I'm yeah. sure. There's uh, some incredible drives in New Zealand. Oh, I bet, yeah. And uh, tons of hiking, which I really want to get back into. Yeah. Yeah. I lived in Wellington. And there's a full drive track that I did because I actually learnt to drive in New Zealand. Oh, really? My first car was a RAV4. And, I mean, I had a four-wheel drive, so I was like, oh, it's a four-wheel drive. This is what it's built for. Yep. But I was still on my L-plates at the time. And there was this one piece of road. It's called Devil's Gate. It's right on the coast uh, on the southern part of the North Island. And you ba- it's pretty much straight up over boulders. You can't huh. see on the other side. And then it's straight down. And <laughs> it's they basically cut out rock to drive through. So there's only room for one car. And so I had to, like, get a bit of run-up speed. And, you know, there's a route. Pretty much you have to drive a certain way to get over the boulders and so that you don't lose grip with the tyres. And I got to the top and there was a convoy of like six land cruisers coming the other way. <laughs> and I was, there's just nowhere else to go. So then I had to reverse back down. And I've actually seen that same uh, piece of road on a number of four-wheel drive apps. And um, I saw it in a four-wheel drive book. And it's rated as, like, on a scale of five, it's rated as seven on difficulty. <laughs> what a perfect introduction while yeah. you're on your own plates. And uh, I tell you what, after that, I was like, yep, full driving is for me. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. I love it. And uh, it was interesting, though, because it uh, just from having that experience and also uh, to get there, it's driving over sand and then past that it's driving over rocks like those loose pebble. Yep. And so I came away from that a much more confident driver knowing, okay, I know how the vehicle handles in this terrain and this terrain. And and uh, my friend who had been teaching me noticed it as well. So even though it wasn't recommended for learners to drive, uh, I found driving full drive tracks actually made me a better driver. I bet, yeah. And it's kind of like everything. If you you push yourself out of your comfort zone, even like a little bit far, like be uncomfortable, then when you get back in your comfort zone, everything's ten times easier. Yeah. Yeah. And where can listeners find out more about your trip? Right. I'm all across the internet, Jade, as the road chose me. So that's uh, Instagram, Facebook. I have a YouTube channel with videos from pretty much every country. Fantastic. Um, and and my books that are published as well. If if people search for The Road Chose Me, they'll find my books. And what's the latest book you're about to publish? Yeah, I'm running a Kickstarter right now actually for that book. Um, it's called The Road Chose Me Volume 2 and it's all about my African adventure. Um, so it's the adventures, it's the misadventures. It's kind of what we were talking about, how the media portrays Africa differently than the reality um, it's about the people I met and what they taught me about life and, you know, how Africa has, has changed me and how I'll never be the same person because of what I learned while I was there. Fantastic. Dan, thank you so much for joining Jade Talks Travel. It's been a pleasure. And uh, I would love to have you on the show again to hear about your next trip. Great, Jade. I look forward to it. Thanks. That was a lot of fun. Awesome. Cheers. Okay, thanks. Thank you very much 
to Dan from The Road Chose Me for guest appearing on J Talks Travel. I think a common theme you'll hear in this podcast is a lot of places in the media that are portrayed as, oh, that's dangerous, you can't go there, bad things will happen. More often than not, it's just locals going about their daily business. And if you've got a story similar to Dan, please get in touch. Thank you very much for listening to Jade Talks Travel. If you'd like more episodes, head to my website, jadejackson.com.au. You can find me on Facebook at Jade Talks Travel. You can find me on Twitter at Jade Talks Travel. I've also started a new Twitter feed, which is purely just cheap flights that I encounter, which is Cheap Flights by Jade. I also mod the Independent Travel uh, Reddit feed. So if you have any questions about independent travel, or if you're looking for a place to be inspired to help you travel independently, it's the number one spot. You'll find cheap flights, useful travel tips, and inspiration. Thank you very much for listening to J Talks Travel. Bye-bye now.